And when you're scooping up, you know, thousands or even maybe a million plus people just to target one or two active investigations, people should be suspicious of that claim, I think. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. My friends, my family, my enemies, whoever you are, welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 119, and you can find the show notes for this show at lionsofliberty.com slash 119. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select. If you are sick and tired of dealing with your Obamacare insurance, you need to look into Health Excellence Select and the amazing concept of health sharing. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. We are also sponsored today by LibertyManiacs.com, your one-stop shop for political and satirical apparel and merchandise. As a listener of this program, you can receive a 10% discount on your entire order by using discount code LIONSOFLIBERTY at checkout. So head on over to LibertyManiacs.com and express your inner Liberty Maniac. My guest today is an independent journalist who recently uncovered evidence of a fleet of aircrafts flying secret surveillance missions over U.S. cities, and he's here to discuss this with us today. Sam Richards, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on, Sam, and it's, it's just a great thing to see a young mind like yourself out there doing great work like this, being an independent journalist. So what first got you started down this path? Why did you first get interested in becoming an independent journalist instead of doing what a lot of people might do if they wanted to get into journalism? They might say, okay, well, I got to go get a degree in journalism and then I'm going to go apply for a job at XYZ news stations and work my way up the ladder. But you didn't do that. You just kind of found a story, ran with it, and here we are today. So how did this all start for you? (laughs) Well, yeah, um, I always kind of had a... uh more of a feel of independent journalism. Uh, like I did a lot of PR stuff for groups around town like Occupy Minnesota and other causes like that a few years back. So I got introduced to independent journalism just doing live streaming for protests and things like that. And uh, it kind of took a while for me to get anything out there like on my own just with my name on it until now. Um, but yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like People usually go to journalism school they pick up a lot of debt from wherever they chose to go to school, and then they end up working for a corporate media where they're, I would say, censored, probably, by their editors and things like that. So independent journalism seemed like a good fit for me, and I'm really happy it took off in the way it did. Uh, Sam, you might not know this, but I was actually, um, I'm a little bit older than you, but I was in college, uh, you know, sometime in the last 10, 15 years, we don't need to get too specific, but uh, <laughs> I actually started off as a journalism major myself. And uh, because of the same reasons you kind of got into it, I was interested in sort of investigating stories and that kind of thing. But when it actually came to studying journalism, as I got more into my coursework, it really seemed to be more about crafting stories in this very specific way. And I'm sure if I got further into it, I, I could have met some great professors that might have taught me a lot, too. I can't say I got that far into the program, but right off the bat, it just didn't feel like the sort of uh, like it was promoting the sort of the watchdog media, which is what I feel the role for media should be. It seemed like it was more teetering that line of sort of just packaging stories for corporate media more than anything else. So I was immediately turned off from it. So uh, I'm glad you've, you immediately went in your own direction here like you did. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the story. Like you mentioned, you are based out of Minneapolis, and this is a, sort of a local story, but it has national implications. So what first got you tipped off to this surveillance issue? 
For sure. Yeah, and it, it did just start off as a local thing. Um, originally, I was actually living in Dallas with my brother for a few months, and, uh, and now I'm actually back in Minneapolis, I should say that. He just sent me a picture message on my phone from his flight tracking software, just like a flight radar app that he had, and it, it showed like a green line from uh, out of the metropolitan area to over the Mall of America doing a bunch of circles, another mall in South Minneapolis, and then right over downtown that was the the biggest concentration of what was clearly circling the city. And uh, me and him both worked at Minneapolis International Airport together, so we have a pretty good background in aviation. And so it just looked really obvious that it was some sort of surveillance flight because if it was, you know, just a simple photography mission or whatever you want to call it, they would have only done like maybe one lap or two, but they wouldn't have sat around burning fuel, flying around the city for hours and hours as it obviously had to have been with how many circles they did. So that's kind of how it started. I was just eating my breakfast one morning, got a picture message from my friend and it quickly took off from there. We investigated it and the internet just immediately latched onto the story. So That's interesting. So at first it was really just something that seemed odd to him and he sent it over to you and you as well thought it was just seemed weird that this one plane would just be circling Minneapolis over and over and over because why on earth would anyone do that? Why would anyone waste that kind of fuel? Who's got the money to waste that much fuel? Well, we know who has the money to waste that kind of fuel. So we'll we'll find out who who was actually behind this stuff. So how did you get further into the investigation? How did you actually get down to the nitty gritty and, and track down who was actually manning these flights? It was all just started from the tail number of the aircraft. In this case, I think it was something like N361DB, but that's irrelevant. But you can easily track back the uh, information on any aircraft using public search engines from the FAA or stuff like uh, third-party websites like Flight Radar and uh, FlightAware.com and these other ones. So we tracked back the uh, registration of this aircraft to Bristow, Virginia, a post office box, actually. And then aligned with that was a bunch of aircraft. I think that was 62 aircraft at that post office. Uh, And so there was a bunch of these three-letter acronym companies registering small Cessnas and other small aircraft at this place. And then at the very bottom of this list of uh, 60 or whatever aircraft, there were two larger aircraft registered to the Department of Justice. So just the proximity between those two things stuck out to me immediately. And then uh, after a while, I started looking at the, uh, the flight patterns that the other aircraft registered to these three-letter acronym companies, see where they were flying, what, if they had similar flight patterns. And immediately, I think the second aircraft number I put into uh, flight radar, it showed it circling around Disneyland. So I was like, huh, there is something big going on here. And then later on that day, after posting pictures of these flight patterns, on Twitter and having them be retweeted pretty far and pretty quick, I looked at the actual company names that, you know, they said like FVX Research or PSL Surveys and just really obviously fake companies. So I searched online to see if I could find who was owning these companies and they had no web presence. They also didn't appear in any uh, listings, public listings for actually registered companies. And what company doesn't have a website in 2015? I mean, yeah. Yeah, that'd be unheard of. So it was just a really obvious, a shell company and a large operation. So then from there, I decided to see if there was any more aircraft registered to other post boxes across the country. And I stumbled upon uh, a couple in Wilmington, Delaware, 
Um, I think there was some in Kirkland, Washington, and a couple other places. So it was really easy to track down all this information. And I guess people have been calling it citizen data journalism. And I think that's a really uh, apt description of what I did. Sure, because, I mean, nowadays there is so much information publicly available that in many ways all it really does take is someone with the the moxie or the gusto to actually go out and track this stuff down and connect a few dots to put a story like this together. Exactly. What, what kind of reaction uh, was received from your story? I, I'm curious, have you have you sort of, uh, I know a lot of the local news coverage there in Minneapolis uh, had covered the story a bit, but, you know, what kind of reaction did you receive, I guess, from local news and from the, maybe there was some from the national media as well? Initially, since I was just posting, you know, pictures of surveillance flights on Twitter, and those went really, really far. Uh, your Anon News, if you're familiar with them, retweeted it, and it, it the ball was rolling from there. So I knew that uh, I had gotten the word out at that point and that people were alerted to this program. And I decided late one of those nights to write up something really brief and put it on a public blogging website, medium.com where anybody can post. Uh, that was another funny angle of this. And so I just wrote a, like 400 words to keep it simple and easily digestible and more you know, easily to spread for people to get the word out about the program. Because at that point, I just felt like I was doing my duty to report something shady I found that the government was doing with our tax dollars. So yeah, after that, it was a few days, or one day maybe, and uh, Mint Press News, which I've been a fan of for a while, they contacted me for an interview and basically just summed up all the research I did. And then I got contacted by a couple other online publications. And a week later, the Associated Press came out with their exclusive, uh, which on some of their, uh, their, they call them customer, which is basically like uh, they'll take the wire report and then kind of tweak the article to make it local for like, I don't know, an AP associated office in, you know, Chicago or something. Right, right. And so that was the first I saw of the exclusive. And it said <laughs> everything that I had summed up. Uh, it said like shell companies, you know, nationwide surveillance, 100 aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. They even quoted similar things to what I had quoted uh, from the ACLU and places like that were to try and explain to people why it was a danger. And then at the bottom of like four or five paragraphs, it said, all of this was available online, and then it linked to my medium.com article. So they never even name you, but they do at least link back to you as the source, but they don't even say, hey, this kid, Sam Richards, he's the one that actually found this out. They act almost like it's their own story. Oh, I think what happened, and this was that wasn't the main big AP story on their, their own website. It was one of their clients that linked back to me. Right. But I think what happened was that there was a parallel investigation going on, and this is another interesting way to kind of analyze the difference between independent journalism and mainstream corporate media. Uh, I emailed their chief editor back and forth who kind of uh, corralled all the journalists into looking at the story for them. And he, uh, he said that they were examining the evidence for four weeks. They had 14 reporters on the duty doing research and contacting people and digging up information and all this other stuff, which... To me, it was kind of confusing as to why they didn't give me a, 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 you know, a tip of the hat or whatever, because it was just me on my computer because I got a text message and I put the story out way faster than them and for free. <laughs> so that was interesting kind of dichotomy to look at. But following the AP article that really made the scoop an international scoop, I got contacted by uh, local news, like you said here, WCCO, which is a CBS affiliate. 
they interviewed me on TV like the day after I moved back home. Gave me credit for getting the scoop out, which was really nice. And then other media around town followed. And it's, uh, it's been really nice to see the local media kind of rally around and give me credit for the scoop instead of the Associated Press. Very much so. Yeah, and that it really does, like you mentioned, highlight the difference between corporate media and independent journalism, which you're pursuing here. Because, you know, these guys, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're full of it, but if they're claiming they had 14 guys working on this story, I mean, it just shows you how much either how inefficient that system is or how much bureaucracy maybe they have to deal with before they finally put something out. Whereas you go ahead, you just do your research. It's, it's, all, it's all very readily available information if you just know where to look for it, know how to look for it, and you just put it out there. And and you don't need to wait to get approval from 15, you know, 15 editors in chiefs or, or what have you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I thought it was funny more than anything, too. It's just like, yep, you guys, I wonder how much they spent in wages to get the story out alone, let alone everything else. But uh, I do I do like the fact that they they ran with the story just because of how big their reach is. And, um, you know, a week after I put my article up, it was on their website. And then a couple of days after that, you have people in Congress uh <laughs> questioning the FBI and even proposing amendments to bills limiting the use of the technology that's been described on these aircraft. So, you know, there is a role for the big infrastructure that corporate media has established. It's just we need to get a way of, you know, kind of tweaking the way they operate and make it more of a uh, actual journalistic watchdog type journalism, like you said. Uh, so have you found out any more information about the specific government program that this is being run under? Has has the FBI or Homeland Security or anyone commented on this stuff yet? And what has been the response from the government side of things? The FBI did comment after the AP did their story. That was reassuring, too, because, you know, I was a little bit worried about how the government would react to what I had posted online. But they came out and the FBI spokesperson said, yep, these are these surveillance flights. They're equipped with really high resolution cameras and in some cases stingray type cell phone exploitation and tracking technology and then they went on to say that this isn't a secret program and i was happy to hear that because you know there's a huge connotation for somebody who discloses secret information but when they said that it wasn't a secret program and it's been ongoing for uh, quite some time now uh, i thought that was a pretty interesting approach for them People online have said that they probably did that so that it wouldn't become a bigger story than it already had been. Um, but yeah, so that, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, so this is basically under the Stingray program. That's something that's that's been sort of out in the media. I believe that was some part of the Edward Snowden revelations. And I know Ben Swan reported on, on the Stingray program as well. That's where they kind of right. have these, these fake cell phone towers on airplanes and they can go around and scoop up all sorts of cellular data. So is that the kind of technology they were using then on these on most of these flights? I know there's also this, this Argus technology that you mentioned in your article. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well as uh, maybe get a little bit more into the Stingray technology for those that might not be familiar with it. Sure. Yeah, those are just the two that they mentioned publicly. And right now, in in the follow-up piece I'm doing, I'm awaiting FOIA responses from them, as well as responses from the DEA and uh, other agencies who I'm pretty sure have their toes involved in this program as well, since it's it's a huge fleet and the FBI doesn't need to be the sole operators. But yeah, in the article I posted, I mentioned Argus, uh, which was a little bit of speculation, but it turned out to be true. Because when they say that they're using super high resolution video cameras that they can use to, you know, play back footage of entire cities to see multiple crimes happening or whatever, that is what they're alluding to is called a uh, wide area persistent surveillance. 
And it's <laughs> the capabilities and like the consequences of that technology are way bigger than just calling it a high resolution video camera. Because when you when you hear like, oh, it's a video camera, you think, oh, it's like a police helicopter. It flies around. You know, it's just someone looking around at the ground trying to see anything suspicious. But really, it's their camera technology and the use of it. They literally call it pattern of life in some cases, which has a really Orwellian creepy feel to it. And that's exactly does. (laughs) You track you can track everything moving within like a 36 square mile area. That's basically a mid to large size city. And you only need to do that with a Cessna or some small aircraft. So the more data you collect on people, the more you are able to predict their whereabouts, who they're interacting and associating with. And then if you link in the cell phone data, which is more tracking and other, you know, content like of calls and whatever else, that's a huge dragnet. And there's no way that you can't call that bulk or mass surveillance because that's exactly what it is. They said that they're using these during active investigations. I would challenge that because I guarantee that within a mid or even a small city, there are, <laughs> there's probably a number of people that have active FBI investigations on them. And when you're scooping up you know, thousands or even maybe a million plus people just to target one or two active investigations, people should be suspicious of that claim, I think. Is that pretty much how they justify this then? They're, they're claiming that it is for specific investigations that they supposedly, I guess, in some way, shape or form might have a warrant to actually legally conduct? Is exactly. That, that's kind of what they're um, trying to sell to us here. <laughs> Yeah, it's I when I heard that I thought of the parallel of talking point that the NSA was using when they said that they're only targeting foreign intelligence. Yet we know the capabilities and we know the programs that they're doing are definitely domestic and in some cases they're feeding, you know, information to the drug enforcement agency to make busts on people, local law enforcement in their investigations, our homeland security for god knows what. And it's like active investigation is just a if you have experience requesting Freedom of Information Act files or, you know, data requests from other organizations, and when you see the word active investigation, you know, you're going to get a stonewall. And it's just a it's a really easy talking point that they can hide behind. Now, Sam, I know you mentioned you're, you're working on a follow up story here, but can you tell us more about the path that this is leading you down? Are there other stories that you think are going to end up connecting more dots to this initial investigation? I mean, what, what sort of other stuff do you have in the works here that you're looking into in, in regards to the, the larger scope of this sort of surveillance that's going on in the United States? Well, I'm, I've always really been interested just for my own sake and, you know, trying to see what's going on and trying to see what our government's doing and capable of in our own name. And I, I'd like to, in my follow-up piece, highlight the fact that this is a federal program, but there are definitely liaisons between the feds and local police, which people never suspect. Um, and I, I really want to look at the, uh, the link between these programs and uh, fusion centers, if you know about those, the, the giant data sharing centers, which police, like local beat cops and like CIA interact between each other with. Um, it's it's hard to explain. I mean, there's so many cans of worms that have been open with this, and I've been getting so many leads from people asking if I've checked out this lead or that, that I, I really want to try and understand the infrastructure of the surveillance state that we're living in, which is a tall order, and it's going to take some time, but I think with everything that we know now, it's becoming easier to piece together. 
Um, but the my next thing is a uh, it's a scoop that I'm trying to work on to see how uh, local police here in Minneapolis are analyzing the social media that people decide to put out. We have a fusion center here that's uh, just outside of city limits, and they <laughs> they built it because of our response to a bridge that collapsed. Um, they said that we weren't prepared enough, so we needed a bunch of FEMA dollars to build a fusion center. And a few years later, a giant uh, network of wireless towers went up, and the, the city of Minneapolis is sponsoring free Wi-Fi. But with that infrastructure comes a network of cameras that, uh, that track people throughout town. It comes with a, uh, a 200-plus microphones that are hidden throughout the city. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, hold on! Hidden throughout the city? Where where are they hiding them? I guess if they're <laughs> hidden, you I guess if they're hidden, you don't you don't really know. But they they do they they admit that this is going on? Yeah, it's it's called Shot Spotter, and uh, the program is to detect gunfire and then automatically alert the police where the gunfire happened. In Oakland, these Shot Spotter technologies actually have been used to convict people by detecting what they said, like recording the audio of the things the people said in the conversation. And then in open court, their conversation was used as recorded by the shot spotter to convict these people. So it's not just an acoustic sensor like they claim. It's actually just basically microphones. And uh, in my digging, I found that the police a few years back admitted to having at least 200 of them. And in their own words, they say hidden throughout the city. So I want to see how many they have now and uh, what kind of evidence they're collecting because... Anytime that the government gets its hands on some kind of new fancy military industrial technology, they use it for, you know, mission creep. It becomes more than what they originally are saying. So we have, uh, we have cameras that track people. We have microphones that record conversations, or at least potentially could. And we have airplanes circling overhead. So people, people need to know that these capabilities are real and they're being used against them and the information is being collected even on the local level not just the federal level. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm going with my research. Uh, and, and you know if this stuff is going on in Minneapolis, then it's going on in, in Los Angeles, in, in Tampa, sure. in, in all major cities across the country, most likely. I, I doubt that they've specifically targeted Minneapolis as, as a hotbed for uh, you know, terrorism <laughs> or, or whatever terrible thing they're trying to protect us from. That's really fascinating that it was, it was a bridge collapse. That I, uh, Was that the big one that was on the news a few years ago? And that was what became the excuse to essentially create this surveillance city in, in Minneapolis. That, that seems so... Um, crazy is the word I think <laughs> exactly and it's it's like uh, you see these things happening at different layers of our society you know you have a, a big disaster which is horrible and unfortunate and then it gets exploited by people in power to expand their own power like 9-11 is the one that I'm sure everybody that's listening is thinking of and that that was everybody knows was used it was a horrible disaster that was used to expand military spending imperialism domestic surveillance you know less civil liberties but it happens at the local level too like it's really easy for police to get grants from homeland security or even just you know trial experiments from private industry to get fancy new technology that's always turned against the citizens of those places like yeah i, I talk minneapolis because that's where i know but you're absolutely correct when you say that it's definitely happening all over this country and yeah the uh, the the aerial surveillance system um part of what i said was the 100 fbi operated aircraft but what i left out was the uh the jenna call sign aircraft 
which is um, it's kind of like a request aircraft where if I have an organization or law enforcement and I need surveillance to go up, I'll request that the feds let me use this plane for a temporary time. So the, the actual fleet of aerial surveillance aircraft is bigger than it is, bigger than originally, and I'll go into that in a follow-up piece for sure. Oh, Sam, this is really fascinating stuff. And I'm curious what kind of your um, your peers might think of this stuff because, you know, as much as we, we've seen over the years with the Edward Stone revelations and there are so many voices out there, like John Whitehead, who I interviewed on this show in his book Battlefield America, there's so much information out there about, about these programs. I mean, it, it, you'd have to be literally burying your head under your mattress to not know about this stuff. And yet it still seems that while there are many concerned citizens like yourself and, and like many of the people that sort of uh, roll in our circles, you might say, it still seems in, in many ways the larger populace sort of lets this stuff slide to the wayside and just kind of writes it off as just uh, now it's just some other thing the government's doing. So, well, But what's the general consensus of sort of, I guess, your age group and your peers? Do they actually take this stuff seriously as a threat, or do they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, government's going to be government, whatever? <laughs> well, it, it's hard to say uh, specifically amongst my peer group. Uh, like, I wouldn't want to speak for everybody, but I mean... They're very concerned with where the government is leading this country, but just like to put it in context, there's people being born now that'll never know a private life. Uh, Snowden actually said that in his original TV interview with Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, uh, and it's true. I mean, people have it in their data. Like, if you have a cell phone with you, you're most likely on some social media, and then you're you're self-reporting to the government on your own accord. And then regardless of all the other capabilities they have, that's enough information to learn about your life or whatever else. But that's something that people voluntarily decide to do. But no, I, I would say that people my age are concerned with the government. Uh, I mean, you, lo you look at the rise of like the Occupy movement and uh, just civil libertarianism being a huge thing nowadays, unlike it was in the past, uh, more of a mainstream thing. I think I think in the future we're going to have some major pushback against the surveillance state when people truly understand the whole context of it, how it was implemented, and the fact that the people operating it are doing so in a completely undemocratic, unaccountable way, and it's not actually producing any results. The NSA has never <laughs> been able to point to a case where their bulk surveillance has prevented a terrorist attack. So people, you know, when you go to the airport, everybody grumbles about the TSA, you know, violating their Fourth Amendments and everything else. And it, that's something that it's, it's easy to complain about because it's something that you're physically experiencing and you're interacting with the government in a person-to-person -person way. And it's, it's harder to kind of wrap your head around it when it's a mass electronic kind of thing with no face on it. So I guess to not babble so much, uh, I think when oh, please. People... I'm, I'm a professional babbler. You're, you're doing just <laughs> fine. <laughs> I think just that when people see the entire, you know, system and how it operates, they'll wake up and they'll do some serious pushback against it. But I, I, I don't know at this time if it's going to be something we can vote out of office. I think we're going to need a, a way more powerful street movement or just some other clever kind of mass mobilization to get rid of this horrible Orwellian system. 
Well, as with any major problem in society, the, the first step is making people aware of it because no one's going to take any action unless they're aware that there's something to take action from. So I'm glad that you are out there doing what you're doing and, and hopefully inspiring other people to do the same thing because this is the kind of journalism that, that we need to really uncover these stories. We shouldn't have to wait for 16 editors-in-chief to approve <laughs> stories to get some of this stuff out there because you know what they're really doing is, is wondering, gee, is the government going to approve this? Are we going to get in trouble for this? And you, know, you, yeah. you just said, oh, well, hope not, and then went off it out there so do you you think this is a trend sam that your your type of journalism the fact that we're going to take this out of the hands of corporate media and when we find information when it concerns us you're just going to put it out there and you're going to show the world look there's something going on i'm going to tell you about it do you see this trend continuing um i would i would like to and thanks so much for the the resounding endorsement there um i didn't really think that's how it would be perceived you know but i i hope so i would i think citizen journalism is an amazing thing uh, there's just a couple things that like people need to be careful of when they're doing it. Obviously, like you have to be credible. You can't just you know take something and blast it out immediately because you have a real danger of something inaccurate being considered real by a lot of people and the consequences that that uh, entails with. So I think the internet and uh, citizen journalism is going to need to change itself a little bit, or hopefully people will just be able to filter out the the bunk from uh, what is actually true. And I think the mainstream media does a good job of, you know, (laughs) filtering out what's real and not real and credible and everything else. But it's just all the negative stuff that comes along with it, like always needing to quote a government source and then basically building your story off of what the government tells you. That's something that citizen journalism doesn't do. Like my article, I didn't even bother to contact the FBI or DOJ or anyone else because I didn't think people would really care what the government said since they've been lied to so many times. And that was something that the Associated Press blasted me for, saying that it was speculation and there was too much unconfirmed stuff I was reporting. So it's it's funny to see these two things, you know, operating parallel to each other. And I hope that one day, you know, cyber or citizen journalism outpaces the corporate media. But I think it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Well, it is going to take a lot of work to get there. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, anything worth doing, this is something my dad always used to tell me, you know, anything worth doing in life is going to be hard work. So, you know, I, I hope that you continue to pursue this stuff. And I hope other people out there continue to be inspired by your work and the work of others, because this is really the trend I hope to see continuing is seeing a problem. And instead of, you know, looking for permission or looking for someone to grant them the method to disperse it to the masses, they take it upon themselves. And with the technology we have today, I mean, 20 years ago i could never get this show on on mainstream radio the only exactly. way, the only way it exists is because i just decided to, to do it and to put it out there and and luckily we have the technology that enables us to do this kind of stuff now so sam keep up the great work before i let you go why don't you just let everybody know where they can find your articles and anything else you're working on how they can follow everything you're doing thanks man um it was good to be on um basically right now i'm just operating off of twitter still if i have something that i feel people need to read i'll put a link up there but it's just Minneapolis Sam with one S. <laughs> I love it, man. Sam, keep up the great work. It was great talking to you, and hopefully we'll see your name pop up again soon with some other some other breaking news. Hey, thanks a lot. It was good to talk to you. All right, Sam, take care. You too. Guys, if you're anything like me and like to wear your political beliefs on your sleeve, Liberty Maniacs is there to help you literally do just that. Liberty Maniacs is an independent brand that designs and sells some of the world's favorite political and satirical apparel and merchandise. 
From funny political t-shirts to libertarian-minded posters, art prints, humorous mugs, and thousands of other products sold by some of the most trusted retailers, Liberty Maniacs has become a top source for liberty lovers of every stripe all across the globe and a thorn in the side of everyone from the NSA to top politicians. And now, Lions of Liberty listeners can get 10% off your entire order by entering the referral code Lions of Liberty. That's all one word at checkout. Again, that's referral code Lions of Liberty for a 10% discount. Head to LibertyManiacs.com. Wear something worth saying. I know nobody likes dealing with health insurance companies. It's bad enough that you're sick, but now, thanks to the ACA, you're forced to pay for all sorts of coverage you don't even want or need, and the odds are you are indeed paying for it. I was frustrated, too, until I did some research and found out about health sharing, where like-minded, health-conscious individuals get together to cover each other's medical costs. And now the fine folks at Health Excellence Select have taken it to another level with a complete health care service, combining health Sharing with personal care assistance to help you find the doctors that you need at the best price, 24-7 phone access to physicians, along with discounts on dental and vision. And if that wasn't enough, they even have a website that works, if you can believe that. Guys, if you are struggling with a solution to your health care needs, look no further than Health Excellence Select. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. <laughs> All right, guys, and uh, it's funny. I'm laughing because as I as I record this this little wrap up rant, I'm gonna do here right as I hit record. I hear a little plane flying flying above my house, and look, I'm not paranoid. Uh, just because I talked to Sam Richards about this surveillance program, I'm not saying I think the government just sent a plane to come spy on me. I'm just saying. There may be a Cessna above my house, but you know it, it's great that Sam Richards is out there doing this stuff. And and man, this is something that literally. Uh, just about anyone can do. If you have fingers and a keyboard, access to a computer, you don't even need to own a computer. You can go to the public library. If you have fingers and a brain, you can be- do what Sam Richards did. You can do an investigation on your own. You don't need permission. You don't need to beg some newspaper or magazine to run with your story. Go to medium.com. Heck, email me, Mark, M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. If you're working on something cool, I'll help you promote it. Because we need this kind of journalism. Like I mentioned, I first went into journalism in college, and I didn't really love the major itself, even though I, I kind of had some ideas about why I wanted to go into it. And I think a lot of those ideas are playing out nowadays with LinesofLiberty.com, which I hope you guys will come and visit, of course. Every single day we've got new and fresh content for you guys. And I don't say it nearly enough. <laughs> I don't remind you, we have a website too. So please come and visit us at LinesofLiberty.com. If you like what we're doing, if you like what we're doing, help support us. You can shop through our Amazon banner at no cost to yourself. You can purchase from our sponsors, LibertyManiacs.com. Or if you're tired of your health insurance, look in Health Excellence Select. These are all ways you can help us pay the bills and no added cost to yourself. But it's important that people like Sam Richards are supported by the public. It's important that people are inspired by what he's doing and becoming their own independent journalist. Because I truly do believe this is the wave of the future. Corporate media is rapidly dying. Cable news viewership is is dropping rapidly. Newspaper readership is dropping rapidly. I don't know anybody that still gets a paper dropped on their driveway. 
Now, it's important that we have independent journalism, and I really do believe this is the wave of the future. You look at guys like Ben Swan, who left a great job as an anchor to become an independent journalist and start the Truth and Media Project, and now, as a result of what he's done, he's now picked up another gig. Possibly higher paying. I don't know what he's making, but he picked up another gig at a station in Atlanta based on the great work he was doing as an independent journalist. So being an independent journalist can even open up doors again to further your career with already established outlets as well. I mean, any way we can get great voices like Ben Swans or Sam Richards out into the media is, is a perfect thing, but we don't need to sit around and beg a TV station or beg some newspaper to run our stories anymore. You don't. If you're running with something, if you want to look into something, just do it. Don't let anything hold you back. Now, Sam Richards didn't. He got that text, and he thought it was a little weird, and he said, all right, well, I'm going to look into this. And once he did, he published it. It was that simple, and he did his research. Maybe he didn't contact 67 government officials first. Maybe he didn't run it through 17 editors-in-chiefs first. But he did his research. Check it out. It's very thorough. Of course, link to all this stuff in the show notes, lionsofliberty.com slash 119. And of course, there are so many ways you can continue listening to this show. You can find us every Monday and Thursday at lionsofliberty.com. You can hear us on the weekends at libertytalk.fm. Every Saturday and Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern, you can hear us throughout the week at lrn.fm, the Liberty Radio Network. If you have an Amazon Echo, just shout at that puppy Alexa, play me the Lions of Liberty podcast. And if she's working properly, she will do just that because we can find us through there, through TuneIn Radio as well. So there are so many ways to listen to the show. I do hope you will keep coming back and finding us any way you so choose. And until next time, folks, don't forget to live long and live free. 